Hello and welcome to Artbox DMV. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I met up with Michael Douglas Jones. Michael is an artist who explores positive memories through the use of assemblages, drawings, paintings, photographs, sculptures, found objects, and collage to make a book of memories. We talk about how he got his start in art, his transition from oil paintings to assemblages. We also talk about how he would like the viewer to respond to his work and advice for other artists. So with that, sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. So here we go. Okay. Thank you again. Thank you. So this is the let's people know who you are mm-hmm. question. So tell me about yourself and how did you get involved in art? I was like almost all kids that you, you start drawing when you're young. And I just continued to do it because my mother said I could do it. When I was four or five years old, I, we lived on a farm on the wilderness battlefield in Virginia. Oh, geez. So... We were kind of poor. We didn't have a lot of money. We had a nice little farm. But that kind of got me awake to, uh, like, at that time, this was in the 50s. And so you're you're looking at a major event in our history that was less than 100 years old, the Civil War. And I'm living where there were at two huge battles. I'm living on land with that, where in, in our... Uh, Western Field is where Stonewall Jackson's arm was amputated after he was wounded by his own men. Hmm. I would find, uh, as a child, my brothers and I would find shells and bullets in the trees and a musket, not a musket, but a, a, a rifle in the ditch because those things were still around. Wow. And one of the main things in my work now is a timeless aspect to it. And that's where I learned that because I was living on a farm. We would go to town. Fredericksburg was the big town. We would go to the town maybe once a month. The rest of the month, we were kind of self-sufficient. Hmm. There were cars driving by on the, the highway, but it could have been 1955. It could have been 1855. It could have even been 1755 for what we were doing. We didn't have computers. We didn't have cell phones. Your TV was the size of your kitchen oven with an eight-inch screen. It was as big. Your radio was bigger than a microwave. So you didn't have all of those things. So you lived as the pretty much the same way people did. We did have electricity. We had an indoor bathroom there. <laughs> uh, but I've lived at other places where we didn't. Oh, wow. Because... That was then. Just amazing how much things have changed. So I got a sense of when I would find an artifact from the Civil War, it was like it was still happening because I'm finding this this piece of metal now, but that piece of metal was put there 100 years ago. And so I kind of blurred all of my time back and forth. So that is why whenever I do every piece that I do now is it has to have a timeless feel. I won't put anything trendy in it. I won't put anything plastic in it. So that's how I got that part of it. So being living in a rural place like that, I didn't have a lot for supplies. So art, I loved art, but I didn't really get art training until high school. Hmm. So from an actual teacher, 
you know, not in elementary school, not really in what we call junior high, which is now middle school, I suppose. Yeah. By then, I had just moved up to uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, and it was much more urban or suburban. Yeah. You know, I'd never seen a suburb before. We lived on a farm. <laughs> right. And I had a teacher, Mrs. Davila at Northwood High School. She was passionate about the art. And I just became just so attached to her as this person who I, I could work with pastels. I could work with oil paints. I could work with clay. I could work with anything. In the three years that I was in high school, we just learned so many things. And it just became an incredible part of my training, my basic training. But then when I was going to graduate, uh, I couldn't afford to go to college. I was a poor kid with a single mom at that point. This is during Vietnam, during the war. So, you know, if I didn't go to college, I was going to get drafted. Yeah. So my brother had joined the Air Force a year before, and he said, oh, it's wonderful. I'm in the Easter Islands. I get to go to Hawaii. It's great. All right, so I enlisted. And I went and told my art teacher that. I said, you know, I can't afford to go to college yet. I'm going to go into the service, into the military. It's only four years. Then I'll get the GI Bill, and they will pay for me to go to art college. Right. So that was my plan. And her only words to me at that time, and I'll just never forget it, is she said, tell them you're an artist. I, I just looked at her. I said, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm going to be in boot camp, and I'm going to say, I'm an artist. Yeah. And she says, do it for me. You know, I set up for you. I'll do anything. And so then I'm in basic training and I was really fit at the time because I was 19. Yeah. I got excellent marks uh, for my fitness. I'd lived on a, on a farm. So I was a marksman with a gun. So I was really good with a rifle. Uh, it was a M16 then. And I was good at all these things. And then we came time, we went to this little building in boot camp halfway through and they said okay today we're going to pick out what you're going to be doing your kind of your military occupation and i looked up at the blackboard there and there were three choices you could be a cook security police or a parachute rigger and i said oh gosh what am i going to do and so he's saying these are your choices pick your one two and three that you want to be and i said well Everyone's a one-way ticket to Vietnam. Right. And so I was very shy at the time. I raised my hand, and he says, yes, Airman? <laughs> I said, I'm an artist, and I'm just ready for it because they were brutal in boot camp. Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. And they could just throw you in prison if they wanted to, if they, you weren't acting the way they wanted to. And he looked at me and says, we've got a test for that. <laughs> what? A test? He sent me to another room. And this guy says, what are you here for? And I said, well, the artist test. He says, okay, you want to be an illustrator? This is the test. And it took a couple hours. It was all book work. They didn't ask you to draw anything or paint anything. I remember looking at a picture, a drawing of a soldier with his arm bent. And the question was, which of the wrinkles are correct? Pick one through five. Which arm has the correct wrinkles in his uniform? I scored a, a, like a 95 or a 98 on the test. And so no, no parachute rigger, nope. no cook, nope. no security policeman. And they shipped me off to Kansas, and I was an illustrator. 
So I did on-the-job training to learn what they used, and there were no computers then. You used a Leroy lettering set. You used uh, press type if you were lucky. There was no PowerPoint, so you would use a regular old black magic marker on a what was like a legal pad, but it was three feet by two feet big, and that was set on an easel, and the generals and all the people would come in, and you would be handwriting the PowerPoint of the day. So that was my job. And I did that for four years uh, during the Vietnam War. My brother, he was a carpenter in the service, and he, was, he went to Vietnam, but I didn't. I was drawing, yeah. and, and I even drew a weekly cartoon for the unit. It was a cartography unit, and so it was just a very bizarre time. Now, I, I came out of the 60s, you know, Summer of Love, 67, and a big Beatles fan, a big music fan, hippie. Had long hair, didn't wear long hair when I went to get into boot camp. I of cut course. My, I cut my hair short so they wouldn't know who I really was inside. But I could have uh, stayed in there if I'd wanted to. And I made staff sergeant within three years. And it was a cake job because it, it was doing what I love to do, even if it was doing lettering with a magic marker. It was what I enjoyed doing. Yeah. But I didn't stay in because I, I was a hippie and wanted to get out and grow my hair long and go be a, an artist. Be an artist, yeah. Mm-hmm. So after you got out, did you go to school? I, I went to school, yeah, and studied with just these incredible teachers. And But by then, I had an idea of what it was I wanted to do. I wanted to be a fine artist, so I wasn't going to get a commercial art job and do what kind of what I was doing in the service with cut because it was just all everything was cut and paste then. right oh yeah I and, can relate to that <laughs> yeah it, it was just and cut and paste in those days was like you look at a circular from your local supermarket nowadays all of those little pictures of vegetables and uh, 250 a pound and uh, while supplies last that was all once cut and paste by hand and by hand with a little exacto knife yep and so I'm thinking I, I really don't want to do that I want to be a fine artist, and I wanted to paint like the old masters, like Vermeer. And so this is now uh, 1973, uh, 74, 75. Hold on, so this was around the mid-70s. Yeah. So so, kind of at the height of this whole high conceptual abstract art scene going on in New York. Yes, and so we were taught in our classes, we were taught to stand up at the easel, and use your brush like a sword. You stand up and you present the brush and you do your painting. And I, I said, no, I want a three-zero brush and I want to stay there for 400 hours painting a drop of water on a glass. And, and not only that, I found out that I, was, I had a color deficiency hmm. due to a, a anomaly. It's a common one, red greens okay. and, and purple pinks and something like that. But my instructors didn't care about that. They just said, you, you've got a unique sense of color because of what I was painting. I don't know what I was doing that yeah. was a unique sense of color, but that's what they said. And I did really well at painting. So then once I got out of college, I, I, started, I was also working part-time as a, at a frame shop in a gallery that was in Maryland. Met some other people there, and at that time, um, Kettler was building Montgomery Village, and he wanted a gallery in there, in in the village, and because he was a photographer and he loved art, and so uh, three of my friends and I, he picked, he said, "Do you want to 
make a gallery. You'll get a loan and I'll, you, you'll have a gallery and we'll help each other out. And so that's what we did. I went right out of the military into college, into learning the arts. And then I went right from there into starting my own business pretty much with yeah. a couple other customers. So I was painting the way I wanted to paint. Now I had to learn from books. I had to learn from going to museums because I wanted to paint like the old masters or mm -hmm. Vermeer with a, a painting that would have a black and white underpainting and then all the color would be added in color, uh, almost transparent colors right. over top of that yeah, black and white. And, right, yeah. and that was the way I painted for a long time. I was about to ask that actually. Did you do the underpainting? But you, yeah, you, you yeah. I would put, I would do the, so basically the painting was finished, but it was black and white. You right. even, I even signed my name on the black and white part because everything else was going to be transparent on top. And I wanted it to have a uniform finish all over the entire thing. So I would, at the time, I would work on eight paintings at a time. And I had a drying box because I was working with oils. I would put a glaze on, put it in this drying box. It was just an old, uh, like a big paper cabinet, a metal paper cabinet with a 100-watt bulb that I, yeah. I stuck in the back. <laughs> yeah. And that was heat enough and dry enough to right. make it work. And then I would go on and paint something else. And I would have 20, 30 layers of glaze, thin layer glaze over top of the black and white painting so that the color was just jewel-like. You could just really see it. And it had a finish that was just really nice, completely over it. So... And I was painting with double zero brushes, three zero brushes. And there was nothing, impressionism, abstract art, none of that appealed to me. That's what I wanted to do. That's the way I worked for a long, long time until like 1999. And then in 1999, two or three different events converged on me. My first one was that by painting that way, by having to do the entire painting in black and white, and then the rest was, that was just kind of like labor. You'd already done your, the spontaneous stuff. And these were still life paintings, very intricate, a lot of symbolism. You wanted to get them as good as possible, and then you just build and build and build. And I started making rules. The light had to always come from 45 degrees over my left shoulder. Everything in the piece had to be life-size so it would fool the eye. By the time I'd been doing it for uh, 15, 20 years, it had become where I'd set so many rules for myself that it wasn't fun anymore. And I ran out of things to say because that's what I was about. I was, I was saying things. And at that same time, my wife's niece and her five-month-old baby showed up at our door one day. We knew they were coming, but they didn't have any place to live. Mm -hmm. Now, my other two stepchildren had just gotten out of college, and we were empty nesters. And suddenly I had this baby <laughs> and her mother, who's also a baby, yeah. that we have to raise. And then I have a toddler who's in my studio walking around and I, I have a picture of her and it just makes me cringe to this day. She's looking through the bottom of my easel while I'm painting and I used lead, lead white, flake white, oh. vermilion, yeah. all, all the really good all the great stuff. All the great stuff, yeah. but it's not great for little kids. No. So there's number two thing coming to change my world. 
and then another one was a, a gallery that um, I was showing at wanted me to change my style to fit his clientele. They, they, you could tell by my facial reaction. Yeah. I, now, this is a big change. He wanted, he loved the glaze paintings. Yeah. But instead of painting these intricate symbolic still lifes, he wanted me to paint people dancing. Not realistic people dancing, kind of like whatever the flavor of the day was yeah. of art. Because to him, it was a business. Yeah, I I respect that, but still, I can never imagine making an artists change their essence in order to just keep open. You know? uh, yeah, and so I I did a, a painting. <laughs> I, I, I it was you played along. You I did played one. along just to see. Well, maybe this is the answer uh, to these two problems that I have. Yeah, and so I I finished the painting. I took it into him. It was five feet tall and two or three feet wide. So I, I, the biggest I had ever worked before was uh, four feet by two feet. And that, those were paintings that had a lot. For, for that kind of paint with a, a triple zero brush, that's, a, that's very big. That yes. That's very big. And so I took it in. I handed it to him. I said, you can have it. I quit. <laughs> uh, you, you can have this painting. Yeah. Sell it for whatever you want. I don't even want to know about it. It's, it's just that's not me. Yeah. So the, the and the other event that happened was I was at that time I was also doing a realist oil painting show uh, for a, a gallery in Washington County, Maryland, and the um, the manager of the gallery, Natoma Vargason, said, "Now for your next show, what I'd like you to do is you set up all of these really intricate still life pieces, and okay. then you spend three four hundred hours painting them." It says. Let's do a show where you set up something and let's show the setup and don't do the painting. Just do the setup. And I had done, you know, I had been influenced by uh, Joseph Cornell and, and Jerry Johnson, who not a lot of people know, but he was, he's really a fantastic assemblage artist. And I said, wow, that would be kind of fun. And as soon as I started it, I never went back to painting again. Wow. I just started building these boxes. They, they would just be small boxes, and they would have pieces in them, but they weren't like scattergun approach like a lot of assemblage art is. It was I was still doing the very detailed setup, very formal design. Everything had to fit exactly right to make this thing work. And... So I had gotten rid of some of those problems that I had. The first show I did was called Eggs and Envelopes. The narrative of it, because there's always been a narrative, was about the two eggs being sent to me in an envelope. And it was a, a metaphor for this, these two children that had, been, had come from Georgia or Florida, I can't remember now, and, and been just dropped on my doorstep and mm -hmm. said, I don't want them anymore. Hmm. So I could... I could do letters and I could do like the letters that I would pretend were back and forth to her parents that, uh, you know, I'm taking care of these kids and I couldn't understand why I was sent them what, what you don't want them anymore. And right. then 
there would be answers. So it was a kind of like that, uh, um, I can't remember the artist's name, but Griffin and Sabine. Mm. Uh, it was kind of like that kind of a show. Right, right. So he influenced that kind of a show, but mine was based in reality. Yeah. And I did that show and practically sold it out. And wow. it was like, this is what I'm doing. And that just evolved over time until what I'm doing now is they look like books. They're still assemblages, but they're generally no bigger than 16 by 20. And come in and see it. It looks like this old ancient book hanging in a very pristine, almost like in a museum, yep. very pristine presentation. And so you think automatically, well, I, I haven't seen a book like that. It's got bolts going through it and it's tied together in the old pages and there's all these envelopes sticking out and there are cdvs and old postcards and maps and draped paper going through it and it looks like you would have discovered this book in the basement of some uh castle or museum or something or an attic you know yeah a forgotten and box this particular series which i call uh the books we carry, that started uh, a little over three years ago. And it started when I joined Gallery 322 because before that I hadn't been, I was working and putting out good work, but I wasn't, I didn't have a home base. Yeah, I didn't have a play. I would just be going to a, a gallery in Rockville. The, 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 my nearest gallery, which I love, was in Boonesboro. It's called uh, Nora Roberts Gifts in Boonesboro. Oh, I haven't been there yet. Okay. It's a gallery, but it's a gift shop also. Before that, I had been in Tag, the artist gallery. Mm -hmm. That was in Frederick. And, but I was also still running the gallery that was down in Gaithersburg. Oh, jeez. In Montgomery Village. I was still working there. Wow. So I was doing two different things, and I couldn't do them both. So when I came three years ago, when I came to this gallery... It just lit a fire. You know, I had a place that was my sensibility. It's This gallery is more of a traditional gallery. It's yeah, mostly it plein air artists, sculptors, and it's not trendy no. at all. And it's in a building that was built in 1800. An old, um, in downtown Frederick, we have a lot of buildings that are, uh, they have a residence on in one side of the building and a shop on the other side. And that's right. how everything was done then. And this gallery has been converted from that into a really nice gallery. And it just looks like it's, it's timeless. And so it really fit my sensibilities. You know, now after you, you saying that, that makes a lot of sense, you know, cause like when I came in here and saw your work, it, it actually does aesthetically fit with everything that's going on in here. Yeah. And it also sticks out. Yes. Well, it's going to stick out no matter where it is because yeah. it is unique. Yeah. But it's it sticks out, but it it is also in the tradition of the older the older work, older painters. There's nothing trendy about it. It's it's not crazy. And there's plenty of room for crazy and well, plenty is. of room for trendy work. And there's plenty of room for lots of things, but. I have a, a certain aesthetic that I am creating and it's very important that where I'm hanging, people are able to get it. And kind of my motto, my, my code is that art should call your name from across the room hmm. and then whisper certain secrets when you come in close. Huh. So this is the kind of gallery where it blends in nicely with all the other pieces, but at the same time, 
you're looking at it from across the room and it, it has a certain design to it. Yeah, a, it does. A formal design to it, but you can go in within an inch and then you'll start seeing things that you never saw. And people, some people that own them, they will see things in there that uh, they hadn't seen before and they've had the piece for a couple of years because there's so many little details that are important, but not they don't hit you in the face from across the room. You know, I, I, yeah, because it's like a piece over here that's to your side. I remember looking at that one and I just got sucked in. Because like you said, because of the detail, because, mm -hmm. you know, you make the letters from hand, mm -hmm. you make the envelopes, mm -hmm. uh, the stamps you find, but generally yeah. you still put them on there. You're building these pieces up and you, the details, it pays off because it's like you said, they come across the books. So it's like, okay, this is like a memory book. Is this a sketchbook? What's, you know, there is a story there and you can sense the story. You can sense the story. Yeah. And, and there is a story. So every one of these books has a story, a poem or a, an essay or a letter that it's based on. So it's, you can't tell a lot by just looking at the picture, but there are little clues to what the story is. Yeah. And, but you're also at the same time making your own story when you look at them. And, that's why I think people are drawn, because everybody's drawn to the story, a story, their story. And that's what these are. They're, they're my story, and they're your story, and it's everybody's story that's ever been and ever will be. Right. All of that is in that book. And I, the, the metaphor is that this is a book that you carry deep inside your soul coat. And it's all the values you ever learned, all the lessons you ever learned, uh, all the letters you ever wrote, all the letters you ever read is all in a, a book inside of you, and it, it makes you who you are. And that book has always been around. You are adding to it, and it will always be. It doesn't matter whether you have kids or not, because we are the parents of all children that will ever come, it, 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 in, in essence. Have been and will be, yeah. Yeah, so it has that look to it, like this is something that was must be very important because they're they're trying to protect it from falling apart. And the book is actually falling apart because our memories are what we've learned, all the hands we ever held, all the hearts we ever touched. They're, they're in that book inside of us and we're trying to keep it all. So we'll put twine around it and try to make it stay together because it's so important. And it is important because it's, it's going to determine what the next generation is, what you're doing and putting in your book is going to determine what the generation after you and the generation after them, what their values and lessons and things they love and things that are touching to them, the literature, the, the art, all of it is included in that book. Yeah, that's pretty heavy. I mean, yeah, it's very it, existentialism, it, you know. It is, it is heavy, but it's... it's, it's could I call it heavy hopeful? Yeah, no, I, that's the thing. It, I don't is. see any like negativity about it. Like the bad, there's nothing bad. You know, I don't get that sense when I look at the work either. Right. You know, um, I do sense that it, one thing that came to my mind was, it's like, it's a memory of some sort. Who's, I don't know. Right. And, and then when I went to your, your website and you have letters on there that you had made or, or written that will work with these pieces. Yes. So when did you start doing that with the... Uh, well, it's kind of... I, I, I don't sketch. I don't sketch. I don't doodle. When I'm thinking about doing a piece, I write 
uh, I write it. Oh. I write down what it's going to look like. What it? I mean, I might have a little bit of a sketch, but generally not. Yeah. I write what this piece is going to say. It's almost like writing a, a stage play. And then I get together all the characters that are going to be in the play, the keys, the pens, the cards, the envelopes, the stamps. I bring them all together, and then I present the play. And the play is not only what I've written, but it's also what you read into it as mm, the viewer. Right. So it's not, it's not a, a play or a piece of art that is static. It has a history, but whoever the viewer is brings the future to it, brings the now to it. Yeah. And when I write, almost always write in first person present tense hmm. because it's a, this book is right now. This book is the moment. And by looking at it, you can't tell whether this moment that it was made was 2021 or 1921 or 1821 because there's not very much in there that dates it. No. But it's still right now. All of those dates are right now hmm. and the story is right now and the narrative is right now so i write in in first person present tense to say i am doing this the letter if it's a letter to somebody it's as you read it are reading it as i write it so as the the protagonist in the the writing i don't know anymore as as you read along i as the writer don't know what's going to happen by the end of the writing either hmm. because you're reading in first person uh, present tense does yeah. it's not like you're writing from memory and then you're writing that way i am writing it as what is going on right now and that's the way i've always written apparently i didn't <laughs> think about it i didn't I, you know I, did, I didn't think about it that's just the way it works yeah so as the viewer look at the piece you see this this strange book and you start making up a story your brain before you even realize it is making up a story of what it is and then you might want to see what my story was but your story is just as valid that you're making up about it right so it it has uh, aspects of the personal and the universal and my writing everything that I write with it the poetry the essays the letters they will generally start with the very uh, micro personal aspect of what is going on in this moment but by the time you get to the end of it you see a more universal statement and mm. it's always one of hope it's always one of this is going to work this is going to work out. Yeah. I will get there. And because that's what the book's all about. We are getting there. We are on this journey and we are going to get where we're going because we have that hope and that faith and, and the experience. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, I don't think I could summarize that. Could you? <laughs> no. I was going to ask you um, what kinds of materials you use or have used in your work. The materials I'm using yeah. are not what you're seeing. It's trompe l'oeil all over again. Like what I was doing with the violin right, you're doing from across the room, you, you look at it and you say, that's a violin. Oh, no, it's a painting of a violin. Right. Now you're looking at it and saying, there's a book. Binders made out of metal, rusted metal and bolts or, or, or pins or something. And then there's this, this strap going across it that's holding it together. And there are letters sticking out of it at the bottom. And 
So the materials that I'm using it appear to be, and I call it uh, assemblage, but I, that, I don't even think that's a good name for it. I'm no, actually, it your, is. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Because I usually think of assemblage as taking things and then putting them up together. But I'm making more than half of it from scratch. A drawing pen, it's not a drawing pen with a 8-inch handle. That was a dowel rod <laughs> that I planed down, sanded down, stained, made yeah. it look like it's 100 years old, and attached an old nib to. So their constructions to make it look like it's reality. Or aged, so, yeah. Aged, too. Because I could, I could take maybe an old cookbook and turn that into what looks like a 100-year-old book binding. Right. So it's, so it's all about illusion. To have the illusion, you, buy, you as the viewer buy into the illusion and hmm. think it's reality. Right. Which is so much of, that's a whole other thing that, that we is, could do yeah. about what you think is reality, what is not reality. But I'm, I'm using illusion to get you to think of the illusion as reality and believe that somebody sometime put this book away. To, to keep in safekeeping right. and you're looking at it to believe and you believe even if it's just for a few minutes you believe in that illusion that that illusion is reality yeah you can i mean if the viewer were to walk in cold not knowing who you are or the, uh, familiar with your work they would probably think why is this frame around this old book you know it was they say uh god's into details yes so you know you definitely lay down that detail and yes. the, the aging techniques you used for some of these books like that was used iron filings and i'll paint anything that i want to have a have a rust effect i will sand it down whatever put a primer on it so that it will everything won't leak through then i will paint it with a solution that has iron filings oh, in it okay. so it's basically there's a layer of iron once it dries there's a layer of iron over whatever it is um, a, a book binding a piece of board anything and then i use a chemical solution to make it rust in real time but fast yeah and, and so it the whole thing appears that it to be a artifact more than something that there's something going on here that I I can't put a time on it. Maybe there I maybe that stamp yeah that stamp is from the 30s. So maybe that's when it was done. Right. But th that map looks like it's uh, older than that. So you start your mind automatically starts because our minds are not like they they want to make a story. They want to fit it all into a box. That's right. And they want to make sense out of it. That's right. And instead of just enjoying it, they try to make sense out of what's going on. And so you tell yourself very quickly a story about this. And that's what draws you from across the room. Yeah. And it, then those yeah. certain secrets come in later as you look at it harder and you you get the feeling for it. And then if I tell you what the meaning was for it in the beginning or what it's a metaphor for, then you say, ah, yes. Aha, you get that aha moment. Aha moment. And, and and that is one of the things that I really go for is what I think James Joyce said was aesthetic arrest. So that you see it and it's uh, explained that art 
proper art leads you to an aesthetic arrest where you just say, aha. It's not like if you see a, a painting of two vacationers skiing down a mountain and that, that elicits desire. Yeah. And you say, oh, I love that painting. I'd love to go skiing. So it, that's what that is. And right. then there's didactic uh, art, which there, there's somebody's trying to teach you something or there is a social commentary. And you might push that away and look at it and say, oh, mm, I don't like that commentary. Or you might accept it. But this art should not do either of those two things. It should make you pause and let your brain work. Your brain's already telling you a story, right. but then let your heart work also and you get a feeling from it because we've all got memories, we've all got letters in, in us and we want to see what is that I'm looking at. And so your, your mind starts to tell you jibber jabber right away, right. Oh, oh, this is what this means. Yeah. But your heart and your soul are telling you a different story, a softer story a more inclusive story about who you as the viewer are, who me as the artist is, and your relationship to me as the artist, your relationship to the person standing next to you mm -hmm. who is looking at it also with maybe a completely different story. Right. But it's all the same story. It's all in that same book. And when people look at my work and they get that moment, it's, that's golden to me. That's that's such a treasure because it's it's working on many levels. Much like when I was painting oil painting, many many levels. Now this has many many levels levels, but the, it's a different story and it's a different concept. And it, to me, it works. Yeah, it. I think it works too. Good. I mean, that, that's why we're here, right? That's why we're here. For those who don't know, what's the difference between an assemblage? piece of work versus a collage piece of work? Uh, well, there is collage in there. Collage is generally more uh, of a flat. It doesn't have as much dimension. I mean, it could, but their art terms are, at their essence, they, they're like pigeonholes. Yeah. They, they, try, they, they contain you and, and tell you to do one thing, like, oh, I'm an oil painter. I was that for a long time. I'm a serious oil painter. <laughs> Don't make me laugh because I'm serious. I have the light coming over my left shoulder. Yep. I paint everything the way it's supposed to be. I am an oil painter. Right, right. But now I don't know what I am. There's sculpture in there. There's collage. There's drawing. There's painting. Mm -hmm. There's ceramics sometimes. An artist, a friend of mine who was um, a dear fellow, but one time he told me I was a dilettante <laughs> because I, at the time, I was, you know, I was young. I was in my twenties. Um, I was trying everything. Yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to experiment with all kinds of art, all kinds of materials. I just wanted to try it all because you, you try it all in order to find out what it is. It's like you're in the dressing room at Macy's and you're trying on different clothes because you don't know which one fits you the best. Right. And so that's why I was a dilettante. And by being a dilettante, I learned a lot of different um, methods, a lot of different tools, and now they help me to use everything I've learned to put out work that is me. That's the true art that I make. And everything I look back on that I've made before was a stepping stone to this work. This work is 
what I've been looking for all the time when I would be young and saying, I'm getting there, I'm yeah. getting there, yeah. I'm almost 40. <laughs> I, I, and, and I heard that Michelangelo wasn't very good until he was 40. <laughs> you know, the things like that right. where you're, you're, always you thinking, you you're always thinking that you don't have much time, you got to be good, you got to work hard, or you'll be a has-been. You, you, you're too old, the muse dances for the younger artist, and that's where the attention goes. Everybody, oh, a new artist, a new artist, new yeah. on the scene, this year's model. Yeah, yeah and, that's, that's and a good way of looking at it, yeah. So the artists who have worked, and you see a progression over decades to where they go, in the, in the pieces that they do after those decades, you see all of that work that came before. Right. It, it might be a completely, this is a completely different medium than what I did when I was 40, what I did even when I was 50. Right. And now I'm 71. And, <laughs> and so I'm in this eighth decade, and now I finally feel like I'm, I'm getting somewhere. Hmm. I'm not there yet, right. but I'm getting somewhere. Well, could you say then that these assemblages that you're working on now, this, this series, do you think it would be setting up for something new and different in the near to not that far future from now? Yes, because I hands down, I, I I hands down I didn't know it at the time, but I seem to reinvent myself every ten years. Oh. Something I make a major change in my art. It's like we just we kind of went through my history, and those all of those things occurred when I was ten, when I was twenty, when I was thirty, when I was forty, and then when I was forty is when we started the tag gallery, the artist gallery, and I did the the opening show, and it was all these still life paintings. Right. And then, then I started 50. I changed when all of those events came together to make me change over. Now I'm 70. I feel a, another change coming, but this is going to be much more subtle. Mm. They, and my only clue to what it is, is that the backgrounds are not going to be this pristine um, English taupe linen board which is $65 a sheet. So I get four, <laughs> four, I get four pieces out of it. Right. And, and they're presented in a way that you think that you get a feeling that you're looking at something in a museum. It's the way it's presented. But I have this inkling and this, this series is still the, it's still the book series of what the books that we carry mm-hmm. as opposed to the baggage we carry. Right. Right. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. No, that's, no. that's kind of negative. But that the background will become more a part of the piece. So the background will be altered, for lack of a better word, will be altered as well. It won't be on a pristine piece of linen mat board. It will be part of it as though it won't be any longer like you picked up a book, had it put into a frame, and, and now it's being presented. It will be like you picked up the whole thing. That... That's, that's where I'm going. And I'm also trying to, toying with the idea of making them more three-dimensional, where it can, the whole thing can set on a table as a unit, not framed as a unit, more sculptural. So I have all this to look forward to, because life is never dull. 
No, and, and it gives me something to look forward to as well. So uh, these stories and themes that you're exploring, mm -hmm. can you give a rough idea of what they would be? Because you stated earlier, it's basically a lot of it is based off of what you have in your mind and what the uh, viewer can bring to it. But I, I guess what I'm asking is, where's that ignition? Where's that spark yes. for these themes and stories? The themes and stories are uh, my substitute for going to a therapist. They will be stories that are about courage. They could be stories about weakness, about addiction, about exploration. It could be about nature and anything that as humans we come across where we have questions about, I start writing and see where that takes me. Hmm. But I always start here at this moment. And one of my tricks for like young artists who want to write or do anything, I start with a blank page, for instance. Okay, I'm going to do a new piece of work. And I will sit down either at the computer or on a, with a piece of paper and write here, comma, H-E-R-E, here. And from there, I write about, well, what is here? So I would write here in the low-lit gallery beyond the babble and chatter of the city we talk about God while the sweet gum tree grows outside. Yeah. So like a, like a haiku kind of thing. Right. Okay. So you, you start describing what is here happening right now and what do you think about it and what are you going to do about it? Are you going to celebrate it? Are you afraid of it? What do all the skeletons in your closet have to say about it over your shoulder? What does your muse have to say about it and your other muse? I have two muses. There's Ponce, who is my good muse. Mm -hmm. She's frail. She walks behind me with her broken bone bag, picking up my mistakes and trying to keep me together and keep me working. And I named her that. Ponce is, 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 is a French word that means thought. And I think it means thought of the day because I think pawns, I'm not, I don't, I started to learn French and then I said, oh, I'll lose the magic of it. I want it to be something that I don't understand. Yeah, I, I hear you on that one. Though. I don't want to be rational. So that's, Ponce is, is, she's a thought. She's my thoughts. So she's the good one. And then Magdalena is the other one. She's the dark one. Yeah. And I named her that because she is my amygdala, mm. my fight or flight, my fear, my dark emotions, all of the things that have happened in my life that were dark. And those two people appear in the stories. They appear in the letters. They appear in the poems. And they are now they're real to me. But they help me to navigate this crazy world. So that's what I write about. I write about my father. I write about my, my mother. I write about, but, but I start out, it, it's very personal. But then by the time I get through it and work out everything, it's more universal. It's a problem we all have. And this is where, how I got through it. It might not always be a happy ending. Right. I mean, and, and there are stories where I'm out into the, in the field and I have my father's pistol in my right hand pocket. And by the end of the story, all I do is switch his pistol from my right pocket to my left pocket. Right. But I've made some kind of progress. I've made something happen in the story, and it's helped me in this life. So that's where the, the that's idea where the, the sparks come the, from. The sparks come from what am I feeling right now about here, this moment, 
So I write in the first person. Well, I, I hope that you're feeling positive about this moment. Oh, I, yeah, <laughs> hey, I'm feeling stellar today. Uh, but when I get into the studio, that's what I have to do. Because I, I can't sit there and wait for the muse to come. Yeah. And that's a problem that I hear so many people have. Oh, yeah. I've got this blank page and oh, the muse. Yeah. But the muse, and I write a lot about the muse too, because I went through that really hard period when I was changing over from classical oil painting to assemblage that where I would sit and stare at the blank canvas. And now I don't do that. Now I get to work because the, the muse does not wear a grand gown. She she's, comes at odd hours with her shoulder wrapped and whispering and she will take care of you or help you out or whisper over your shoulder if she sees that you're already working. Hmm. doesn't matter what you're doing. I could be cleaning my studio. I could be sanding down a dowel rod into a little toothpick. She sees that I'm putting in an effort and then she'll give me a little bit of a spark or a bright edge, a bright, just a new word, just a word. That's all I need is a word Wow. To, to, from her. Yeah. And then I say, okay, let's go with that. You're right. And we start working. Hmm. But if she sees you sitting there like, oh, I, I don't know. I can't see anything today. <laughs> she's going to say, well, come on. If you put in an effort, I'm going to help you out. And she does all the time. I have a feeling you're going to say that again when I ask about the advice. Because that is actually some good advice right there. That's the advice that I would give to anybody. Just start somewhere. And if you ask that question, I will give you some other advice that also helps. Oh, it's coming up. Okay. <laughs> After this word from our sponsors. Yeah, really. <laughs> so why are memories and values important in understanding ourselves? They are, they are the, the muscles that are on your bones. You know, mm. when you go through this life, every second you are making decisions. Just going out to get a sandwich at lunchtime, every second you are making not one decision, but decision after decision after decision. And those seem automatically. Yeah. It seems as though, as though it's by rote. But you're making those decisions based on something. Hmm. And so it's always based on what you learned not when just when you were a child, but when you were a teenager and, and an adult, and before you were even born, because the, your parents learned values and lessons that they passed on to you, yeah. either by telling you, or by using a, making you go out and get a switch off the tree because you pushed your brother down the hill. You learn about fight or flight. You learn about love and hate. You learn all of the all of the things that make you you. If you forget them, drawn to like like addiction, you lose an addiction, and, and everybody's addicted to something. Yeah, you lose that book that you have. You know, you you got high or drunk or or involved in the game, and you left your book of all your values and your lessons on somebody's couch somewhere and you don't even know where it is anymore and and you lose all of your connections to the rest of the world only thing that matters is your addiction yeah and you don't have that anymore you don't have those those values those lessons the love the twine that's holding it all together you don't have that and when you find out you don't have that you, that's when you find out how important it is hmm. how important it was right to be connected 
And that's, that's, what all, that's all we are, is connected. And when you're in addiction, that's when you, you have no connection. You just have one connection. That's your dealer. That's games shop. That's your only connection is that. You lose your connection to your friends, your old friends. You lose your connection to your family. You lose your connection to your coworkers. You lose your connection from the people that are just walking down the street. Hmm. You are alone with that dark, dark Magdalena who, who, is, who keeps you, and my Magdalena is, the way I write her, is that she keeps me as hers. In, in the story, she uh, rescued me from the war. And there's always the war and the war before this war. Right. And she rescues me in this story, and then I'm hers. I'm her soldier. And she will tell me, she will decide, I, was, I didn't die. Yeah. She will decide when I die. And so every day she feeds me ale, tells me things. Then she sings me to sleep when I'm either in a stupor or relaxed. And then as I fall asleep, she starts to sew a shroud around me and pack it with stones. Hmm. So by the time I pass out from this addiction or uh, distraction or whatever it is, then she'll take me down to the river. <laughs> now, I will sink, and I'm sewn together. At the, the shroud, shroud is the sewn rocks. through, and she uses a sailmaker's needle and sews my skin in the shroud as well. It just oh, go, all goes through. And, and the only thing at that point that I have to rescue me is the other muse. Right. Ponce. Well, she's been waiting... For me to do something correct, but she going to come down to the river and collect me and take the shroud off, and then I'll go off with her and maybe find my home, maybe, or maybe this won't it won't work. Maybe this time I will go underwater and that's it because that's, that's she's the only connection I have left because the connection that I'm drawn to, addicted to, is Magdalena who is has me as her toy. She's going to do what she wants, and decide everything for me. So hmm. I have no other connection. Well, okay, then I have to ask this. Okay. Then it sounds like that uh, we don't have free will. Sure, you have free will. But you don't have free will when you're under the influence of some power that is greater than you. You're, I see. The, the, the addiction, no matter what it is, you could be addicted to shoes. I know people who have so many shoes they go into debt because you got to have shoes. And yeah. you love, I love my shoes. So your free will, you've given up your free will, not, not even volunteer. You didn't, nobody plans to be, nobody goes to school and when they write their, in their civics class, if there is a civics class anymore, what are you going to be when you grow up, Johnny? I'm going to be an addict. <laughs> good, good. Good, good, good for career you. choice yeah, there, yeah. Johnny. <laughs> there, so you're, yes, you've got that, but you give it up. I see. Not not voluntarily, but it is voluntary, I guess. It gets taken from you by other events. You get more susceptible, maybe, is yeah. the, yeah. Yeah. the best I mean, way to put it. You can it. get beat down yeah. by life, because life does try to beat you down. Yeah. And do you stop believing in miracles? Because, you know, I walk out the door. I can't walk out my front door without seeing miracles. And as long as I believe in that, and that refreshes me when I walk out there, when I start not seeing them, then I see the whole world in a different aspect, and then I'm, I'm ripe to become cannon fodder right. for some 
dealer or some uh, consumer item that is, it will make me feel like, oh, well, that's a miracle. Right. I feel great. I feel like God. That's, you substitute the real miracles for this one that you can get seemingly first taste is free. Yeah. Uh, Hey, I feel great, but it's not that way. I see that. I see. So, um, because you kind of pretty much answered the question already, but is like how much research goes into your assemblages, and you pretty much answered that in great detail already. Unless there's something else you would like to add. I suppose I started writing something, and or I hear a phrase like last week I heard I was listening to a a song by um, Garnett Rogers, Stan Rogers' brother. Uh, He's Canadian (laughs) folk singer, and one of the there's a phrase in there down the knacker's yard and i i've listened to the song a thousand times yeah but i then i said what what do you say yeah and i go look it up and down the knacker's yard means down at the slaughterhouse so he was buying a horse that was going to go down was on its way it was done with it's like old folks or right. it's, uh, greyhounds it was it was done with its uh, with making money and they were going to take it down the knacker's yard and kill it. And that just started me doing research on slaughterhouses and how Magdalena would love those. Right. And, and, and she could go down there and collect An these, endless amount. These, these endless amount of broken souls yeah. from the knacker's yard. And so that started a whole piece for me. So the research was completely off track of what I would have been doing that day. Yeah. But when that kind of, when that muse tells you that, you, when you hear that set of words, and it might be just a set of words that sound good, and then you go research, and then you build from that little spark. Because when you're an artist and you've been working as long as I have, you're kind of jaded. Not kind of jaded. You are jaded. <laughs> I was jaded. Say you are jaded. You are jaded. <laughs> You've seen it all. Yeah. And when you see something new and fresh, and you can still learn something, you can find that spark, and you you got to hold on to it. You can't let it just burn out. No. It's it's you got to build a the fire in a correct way. I'm not very good at building fires, but <laughs> you could. You need to build that fire and then make that art. So every little spark that you see in the street has the potential to become a roaring fire and a masterpiece. So with all that being said, (laughs) how would you like uh, the viewer or people to respond to your work? In most cases, I do have the perfect audience. People are, in this gallery, when people come in the door, I'm sure that 90% of people in the world or in the the United States have never been in a gallery yeah they they don't they it's not something they they they, I will get people that come to the door and ask permission to come in I've experienced that too yeah can I come in your gallery yeah and I say of course you can is there an admission right no there's not yeah come in enjoy if you have any questions I'm Michael just call me and then they loosen up a little bit and then They'll ask questions. And then when they ask questions, then that's when you can just unload. You just right. let them know. And then they feel smart. <laughs> and they won't hesitate to go in a gallery the next time. Yeah. Because because they, they were treated on a one-to-one basis about art and art appreciation. And they had a good experience. So then they're going to go in and do it again. So my perfect audience is 
that they come in and they they feel they get that aesthetic arrest where they are with the the picture and there's nothing else there's no distractions mm. there's no babble and chatter of the city street right they they don't hear whatever music's playing they they connect with it they don't know why and that's fine but they connect and and when you see that happen it's just a treasure it is i actually have experienced that myself it is uh i don't know if rewarding is the right way to say it, but it is very warming feeling yes. for me yeah. to, to see that because yes. you see the gears in their heads turning and they make that connection and the light yes. bulb goes off it's yes. like i've done my job yes because what our one of our jobs is as artists is to make people think yes. to most of what they're seeing every day is to make gear to make them not think to make them couch potatoes, to make them <laughs> subservient, Hell to yeah. make them just go along with the crowd and buy this, you'll feel better. You don't feel better? Oh, well, wait a minute. How about get buying the antidote? Right. You, you will feel better. But what we do is so many different ways, depending on what your art is, you could make them feel desire that they want to go skiing. You could make them think, no, politically, I don't agree with that picture. You could make them think, well, I don't like that. But they think, well, but I do like this. So all we're doing is making them think and pitching them out of their daily sleepwalk. Hmm. That is what commerce in general wants us to do. They yeah. just want us to go through the day buying things that we don't need and think, not thinking anything beyond whether I want grand latte or the, the or the uh, tall latte oh oh yeah, so Sorry, yeah i don't drink at that coffee shop but i know I, what you're talking about i don't either but i and i couldn't remember the the one that starts with a v the other uh, the verde or whatever yeah, the, the verde, larger yeah it's the Italian. larger but that becomes your big decision for the day yeah and the your your mind your mind is 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 such a gold mine of opportunity and radiance and culture so when you as an artist are able to connect with that person and pitch them out of their daily grind that's not it's warming it's rewarding it's why you get up in the morning and try harder the next day to make something that not only pitches not only pleases you right but it you you get that circle going where i made it you see it you tell me i make another one and we just go around and we're, that's that connection that you didn't have before. And we're, we're not connected. So yeah. we want to be connected. We don't say hi to people on the street. We just are not, we don't feel a connection when there is such a connection that because there's nobody here but one person. You know, there's the, the like, uh, in one of the things I write, you breathe out and I breathe in. Where you leave off and I begin, I mm -hmm. cannot say. Where you leave off and God begins, I cannot say. Just the way it is. There is only, there's no other. There's just it. Hmm. All of it. It's yeah. kind of a pantheist uh, well, uh, yeah, look but. at it, but it, it's it's the way I feel, that everything is it. All, the whole thing. If, if I cause you harm, I'm harming everybody else hmm. and myself. If I show you love, I'm loving everybody you, everybody else, and myself. Yeah, I, I like your, your kind of concept about trying to jar the person or the viewer, mm -hmm. you know, because it does seem like you get into a silo. And you're right, as being an artist, you'd be, 
get people to knock themselves out of that silo and mm -hmm. try to become connected with everything. I, I get what you're saying. I'm picking up, I'm picking up what you're throwing down as they say. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's what that's, if somebody comes in and says interesting, that's an interesting piece. But they, why, why is it interesting? They didn't, they like it, but they didn't allow. Yeah. Th th that was probably, th well, they didn't allow their mind to, to think about it. They didn't allow their heart to think about it. They just allowed their mouth to think about it and say, that's interesting. <laughs> hmm. So their mouth says, that's interesting. And then your mind and your heart says, all right, well, let's, what's next? Because not the entire um, relationship was never, never had the spark to get going and say, this is me seeing this piece of work. This is a moment in time that is uh, eternal. Hmm. Well, this is uh, kind of the, the last question for the interview, and this is the one that we touched on earlier. What advice would you give to your past self and to other artists? My past self, the world is so different today than it was in the 1950s. If I went back to tell my past self uh, about how to navigate through this world that I'm in now, it, it seems fantastical. We didn't have, said before, we, did, uh, you know, we didn't have cell phones or any of those things. No. To have a pencil and a, a piece of paper was cool. You could make magic with that. We didn't have computers. I, I don't think I got a computer until I was in my 30s. I'm not sure. I don't remember. It, it, but, but before that, it's, it's hard to go back and tell that person what they should look forward to because I couldn't even describe it mm. because it was such a different world. Just 60 years ago, it was such a different world yeah. than what we live in now. Oh, yeah. So, but I would tell him what, what I was saying before to get to work. Do the work put the time in and do, do valid work. And with all, uh, like art, young artists today, you're going to be bombarded by distractions. Oh, yeah. Telling you to do this, do that. I, I don't like the way you're doing that. And you should try it doing our way. That artist has to be true to themselves and get to work. Do something. I don't care if it's bad. By doing bad things, you, you're learning something. And what I have to do if i find myself like procrastinating and not doing the work sometimes you can go for days and not know that you're not doing the work yeah, yeah. and i will catch myself and now i put a timer on i have a timer uh, on my phone because it's gives me it says okay now for the next 25 minutes you're not going to look at the computer you're not going to look out and see what birds are at the feeder. You're not going to go uh, make a sandwich. You're going to work for 25 minutes. And then at the end, when it has a ticking sound, so that you know, I don't even listen to music when I'm doing that. I have that ticking sound, and it's in the back of my head, and I know I've got 25 minutes to get something done, anything, anything. And then it gives me a five-minute break, and then I go back and work another 25 minutes. And I divide my day into four different timers. There's a create timer, a clean timer, a commerce timer, and a connection timer. The, the four C's that I've got in there. And I, huh. if, if, if I go to 25 minutes where I'm working, gluing things together, sanding, drawing, whatever it is I'm doing, if at the end of that 25 minutes when the little bell goes off and I'm in the middle of something and I keep working, I'll keep working. Yeah. But 
if I've, I'm getting something done, but I'm not getting an, enough done, you know, you don't, you're not feeling the magic, then I take that five-minute break, and then I go on to cleaning. I clean the studio for 25 minutes. And then if, after that, I could, I could always go back to creating if I feel it, or I can do commerce. You've got to do commerce. You've got to do your publicity. You've got yeah, to do you, all the things that you need to do. Yep. The taxes, you uh, the pay the bills. You could do that. But when you do it, you're doing it from the time the ticking starts till the time it finishes. And then my last one is connection. You connect. You, you've got to keep your connection with your other artists, with your family, with uh, people that, you know, email your mom, message your mom, call your mom, do something. And... So my day is spread out so that I know that I'm getting things done. I can look back and say, I did work today. I created something. It might have been only 25 minutes. It might have been four hours. Yep. But I, I did something, and I can go to bed at night and say, okay, I, I did a man's job today. Yeah. Like from uh, Blade Runner, Gates or Getz says, you've done a man's job, sir, because you did something. You don't have to do you don't have to do it all in one day and you don't have to knock yourself out just get something done get something created the muse will see it your family will see it your landlord will see it yeah. eventually and, the audience will see it and, and eventually or the your audience, audience. Will see it. yeah yeah and, and those people are all your audience my yeah. landlord cares he cares if i make art and sell art cuz because that i'm part of his world exactly yeah. and and he's part of my world and he's He's a motivator. So you've got all these motivators that are telling you to do the work. And if you don't do it, if you just sit there and wait for it to happen, all of those connections are going to be upset. And it upsets your world. Yeah. And then you get depressed. And then all hell breaks loose. All, all of it does. And like you said, you break down. So You break down. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, I've, someone's offered the same kind of advice before. And, and I believe that 110%. You've got to do the work doesn't have to be stellar. It just has to be something. It's because you build upon that. Even if it's bad, you build on it. Someone, uh, is it uh, Pablo Casals, the um, cello player? Yeah. Anyway, he's, he was in his 80s, and he was still practicing for four or five hours a day. And somebody says, why do you keep practicing? You know who you are? Yeah. You're the best. He says, he says, because I think I'm starting to get it. <laughs> you know, I think, and that's what I feel. Yeah. <clears throat> I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get it. I've, yeah. I've done, I've, I've had this life and I've, I've worked hard and maybe now I'm start. it's all kind of coming together. All those parts are now becoming a whole hmm. and it's, that is warming. That is refreshing. That is why most of the days when somebody asks me, I say, I'm stellar. <laughs> I am because... And I did ask you, and you did say you were stellar. Because my, my work, which is the hub of all those connections with the landlord, the wife, the, the kids, the, the collectors, the browsers in the street. I'm the hub, and every, everybody is their own hub, of all these connections. And to make all of those connections happy and satisfied and comfortable it relies on you and so you're mm. responsible for making yourself and all those people come back to you and say you've done a man's job well i don't know how i can in improve on that 
So thank You'll you work again. on it. Yeah, I know. I will. I will. I'm not going to give up. I, thank you again for doing this. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. Well, I'm glad you had fun because yeah. I have fun doing it. So yeah. I want to thank Michael for taking the time to do the interview. And I want to thank Gallery 322 for allowing us to do the interview at the gallery. If you want to read the letters and poems that go with the memory books, go to Michael's website at michaeldouglasjones.com. And head on over to Gallery 322's Instagram for the latest at Gallery 322. And that's Gallery 322 Frederick. And if you want to hear past interviews, go to artboxdmv.com. So, until next time, thank you for listening.